Hello and welcome to the Reformation Anglican Podcast, the podcast that bombards you with Father Ted quotes for the sake of the gospel today. Those Protestants, up to no good as usual. <laughs> today we're going to be thinking about uh, the next article in the Third Nine Articles, which is, it's entitled On the Resurrection of Christ. Really, it, it's about the, the exaltation of Christ. Um, so Christ's resurrection from the dead, his uh, his ascension into heaven, and um, it actually ends with his his return to judge all men at the last day. Uh, we'll maybe discuss that more fully in another episode. Um, so we're going to be thinking about the exaltation of Christ, his resurrection, and his his ascension. Let me read. Uh, let me read the article here. As Article Four, the third article says, Christ did truly again, truly rise again from from death, and took again his body with flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth until he returned to judge all men at the last day. Obviously, a central part of our faith that the um, that Cromer is wanting to reaffirm. Uh, this article comes within the context of the articles that are sometimes referred to as, as the Catholic articles. Uh, they're reaffirming the Catholic faith that we see in the ancient creeds, and uh, in some ways, maybe similarly to uh, the previous article that we did on Christ's descent into hell, uh, Cranmer is wanting to reaffirm uh, doctrines which. He understands that the church has kind of always believed and that there's a strong testimony from the church, even from the church fathers, and which are very, very clear uh, in the Holy Scriptures. So in the Reformation canons, uh, the Reformation canons are always very helpful to understanding uh, the 39 articles. If you want to understand some of the historical the historical backgrounds uh, to the articles, then always make sure you look up the canons. Uh, it says this in those canons, some resuscitate the delusion of Eutyches concerning the body of Christ and assert that the word was changed into the nature of flesh, which they claim was immediately once more turned back and absorbed into the divine nature as soon as it was taken up into heaven from the dead. And so that is the concern here in Article 4. Uh, we don't believe that at the resurrection and the ascension, Christ's body was just sort of morphed back into his divine nature. But rather, as the article says, uh, he ascends in his body with flesh and bones and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature. Uh, and so Christ died as a man. Uh, his soul went down into Hades and then he was raised up um, as a man. Yes, this is this is such a central, such a central tenant. It, is it in First Corinthians, Paul says, you know, the things that are. You know, I passed on to you the things that are of of, of central importance as I received them. Uh, that Christ was, was was crucified according to the scriptures. That He died and was buried, and that He was uh, raised on the third day. Um, so the resurrection is is a, a true historical bodily resurrection. It is really central to uh, to the Christian faith, and, and obviously Cranmer wants to wants to recapitulate that. So there he is, risen from the dead, like that fella, E.T. I guess the 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 resurrection is 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 important historically. It's also important um, theologically. You know, Paul Paul ties that into a whole discussion around uh, our hope of resurrection. He says Jesus is the the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the he's the kind of um, the first snowdrop of spring, if if you like. It's not just oh, there's there's been this person who's been resurrected. Isn't that interesting? It's Jesus is resurrected, and therefore we see something of of the the new creation breaking in. This is the the first fruits of of God through His Son restoring the whole of creation, uh, restoring the whole of of humanity. Um, absolutely, one of the ways that I've heard it put recently was that He rose in the new creation uh, as the new creation. So the new creation 
uh, has actually come in now. The new heavens and the new earth, which are promised to us in the Bible uh, in the future, that has actually come in uh, right now. And this hope of the resurrection, I guess it goes back to the Old Testament expectation that there would be at the judgment day. All of us will, will rise up, will be resurrected again to stand before God to be judged. And that is our hope in, in the future that our bodies will die now, but in the future they will all be raised again and we will we will be alive again materially, physically, in a new heavens and a new earth forever. But Christ has inaugurated uh, that new age. He's inaugurated that new creation uh, as he himself rose from the dead. We're all going to heaven, lads. Way. I think it's fascinating as well, you know, throughout the 20th century, quite a number of, of figures, clergy figures within the Church of England and uh, other parts of the Anglican world uh, actually, you know, might not have believed in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so I think it's quite striking just how, uh, you know, how much it's stressed here in Article, Article 4. I think it really speaks to those modern day debates, really. Another important theological significance of the resurrection is the fact that the resurrection is itself part of the accomplishment of salvation. So we sometimes think about the cross. Um, I think especially um, as evangelicals, we want to uh, really emphasize the saving power of the cross. Uh, and we often, whenever we explain uh, the gospel to people, we really emphasize the importance of the, God, of, um, of the cross. Um, actually, if you look at uh, the preaching of the apostles in uh, the book of Acts, especially, uh, it's actually the resurrection that is really brought to the fore. I don't think there's a single time where the apostles present the gospel in the book of Acts where they don't at some point me- mention the resurrection. And that's because the resurrection... It's not just that Christ saves us in his death and then sort of in order to uh, you know, be alive again, he has to be resurrected. It's actually that in the resurrection, he himself accomplishes salvation for us. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it speaks about how he was vindicated or he was justified in the spirit. So Christ himself had to be, had to be uh, vindicated. And um, his vindication, his justification is then our justification. So uh, Richard Gaffin writes that his justified state or his resurrected state is the reward and the seal which testifies perpetually to his perfect obedience. And so it's an affirmation, uh, Gaffin writes, of his Adamic uh, righteousness. And we see the same sort of thing come through then in uh, Romans uh, 4, 25, uh, where we read that he was raised for our justification Our justification could not happen unless Christ himself was justified, unless he himself was vindicated, uh, that all of his his righteousness was affirmed and proved. And then that righteousness is imputed to us uh, whenever we believe in Christ. And so uh, really uh, central, important stuff. Yeah, we've been we've been reading. um, It's lovely when things dovetail. We've been reading Bavink in in college and uh, um, he has some great stuff on 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 the resurrection. He says, you know, there's the danger of of just viewing the resurrection as the proof um, that that the cross is is uh, efficacious, the proof that, that that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, and we treat it as just that. And he says, there's much more going on. He says, um, this is from the wonderful works of God by Bavink. He says, uh, since the work of salvation is God's work and His alone, the benefits of Christ would never reach us if He had not been raised from the dead and seated in exaltation at the right hand of God. A Jesus who died would be enough for us if Christianity were nothing more and needed to be nothing more than a doctrine for us to grasp with our mind or a moral prescription, an example which we had to follow. 
But the Christian religion is something very different and much more than that. If Jesus were just a good teacher, then his his life and death would be it would be sufficient for the Christian faith. And then, and then you know the resurrection is just a nice little uh, add on. It gives a bit more more oomph. You know, we should we should listen to Jesus because he he was raised after, and that gives him some more some more credibility. Bavink says, "No, the the Christian faith is is about what Jesus, the risen Jesus, is is doing now." And so that transforms how we think about about church, uh, how we think about evangelism and mission. The whole of the whole of church history is the risen and glorified Jesus gathering his people throughout throughout time and space. Um, it's not it's not simply about us ascending to his teaching. It's about what Jesus is doing in in the world. Yeah, Spavink says his his work's not done at the point of his death and burial. The the resurrection, even the ascension, have. Uh, have salvific purpose and power to them as well. So I think what we're saying here is that there's a real uh, synthesis between historical facts, historical realities, um, and theological truths. Um, So historical facts don't exist in a sort of theologically neutral fashion, and theology doesn't exist. True theology doesn't exist apart from historical facts. Uh, The resurrection is also... um, a great thing to point towards in terms of our apologetic sort of presentation of the gospel. What does the evidence um, actually point towards? Um, sometimes you'll hear scholars talk about um, what they call the minimal facts. So these are sort of minimal facts that are accepted by uh, the great majority of scholars, regardless of their metaphysical commitments. And so the question that uh, the minimal facts argument kind of raises for us is what is the best explanation to accept in these minimal facts? Uh, that all scholars kind of recognize. And so uh, the minimal facts uh, that, as I say, the vast majority of, of scholars recognize um, are that Jesus himself uh, was crucified on the cross, uh, that he was buried uh, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, that subsequent to that burial, there was an empty tomb. And subsequent to that, there were uh, multiple figures who claimed to have seen Jesus alive in a variety of instances. And so these basic facts that exist, that's what the historical testimony points us towards, they are an invitation to the best explanation. So sometimes I've I've explained it to sort of youth in, in this sort of fashion, in what could be described as the five four or five E's of the resurrection. So there's the execution of Jesus, um, again an established fact by the vast majority of scholars in the field. Then there's the empty tomb of Jesus. And again, this is interesting because even uh, the empty tomb was something that uh, the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the apostles conceded. Um, So they tried to argue that the disciples stole the body. Um, And then you have the early accounts. So the creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was something that Paul himself received. Um, So it's not something that he presented for the first time. It was a creed that predated Paul. And most scholars date that to within the first couple of months and years of Jesus's death and resurrection. And so there you have um, very early on within the months, initial months and years um, after uh, Jesus's death, you have uh, these documents that are claiming that multiple eyewitnesses have seen him. First uh, Corinthians 15 claims that there were 500 uh, male eyewitnesses that saw him. Uh, we have a variety of people. We have women who, who, um, who claim to have seen Jesus um, again, why would that be included uh, in the first century if it didn't happen? Women couldn't testify in court and that sort of thing. So if you're going to make up an account, why would you make up um, the testimony of women? And then we see a variety of people um, who all testified to seeing Jesus 
uh, in the flesh. We see James, the brother of Jesus, and then we see Paul, an enemy of Jesus, all brought um, in together. So we have those early accounts, we have those eyewitnesses, and then finally we have the emergence of the early church. So throughout uh, Jewish history, Jewish history was kind of littered uh, with people coming along and claiming to be the Messiah. And what would happen is uh, time after time after time, Messiah figure would arise and uh, he would uh, claim to be the Messiah and he would gather up a group of followers around him who would follow him. And the movement would sort of build and build. And then at some point he would die. And then after he died, uh, his movement would disband with him. And that happened again and again and again. Figures uh, arose, uh, the movement grew, but uh, the figure died and then uh, the movement died with it. And this kept happening until uh, the Lord Jesus came into the world. And as we know, uh, his movement uh, grew uh, during his lifetime, but it, in comparison, really, it exploded after uh, he died. So what happened? What makes uh, the event of Jesus completely unique compared to all of those other figures who claim to be the Messiah. I think the resurrection actually is the best explanation. These facts uh, call us, they invite us to the best explanation to this evidence. And then the other point as well that is made by figures like N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright and other scholars is that, you know, if this sort of event was going to be sort of made up by the disciples or even if they kind of subconsciously kind of became genuinely convinced of it somehow, you know, where did they even get that idea from? Jewish history had an idea of a general resurrection that would happen at the end of time, at Judgment Day. But there was no concept uh, within Judaism in the first century of one individual dying and then one individual rising again. And so there was no kind of background for this sort of uh, an event to happen. So I think that that is uh, quite a strong uh, place to rest um, our faith. If we go through periods of doubt, uh, we can look back to this historical event uh, and root our uh, our beliefs, our theology upon historical fact. Absolutely. I was reading um, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Matthew Sleeman last night on one of the, just at the opening of, of his, his chapter in this book, he says uh, one of our foundational assumptions in this chapter is that the, the, the Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. Our faith is founded in these historical realities. I've got I've I've got here the the uh, a body of divinity by James Usher. I I made the mistake of wandering into the library, uh, a college alone yesterday, quick five minutes in and out or so I thought, um, and I came across the the works of James Usher, who was um, he was the Archbishop of my hometown Armagh, a good Northern Irish Reformational Anglican. He was bishop in the the sixteen hundreds. So I got here is his, his kind of systematic theology, and uh, this is what he has to say about. Um, about the comfort of the resurrection. Uh, so it's in, it's in Q&A format. He says, what, what special comfort arises from this, that the Lord of life is risen from death? He says, it assures me that his righteousness shall be imputed to me for my perfect justification, that he, had, that he who had the power of death, that is the devil, is destroyed, his works dissolved, and that all our misery is swallowed up in Christ's victory. It also comforts me because it does from day to day raise me up to righteousness and new newness of life in this present world. And it ministers to me a comfortable hope that I shall rise again in the last day from bodily death. So let's think then a little bit about uh, the ascension. Of course, Christ ascended uh, uh, bodily and physically. 
uh, with all of his bones and everything that was appertaining to the nature of man. And he is now uh, seated in uh, the throne in heaven. And the early church uh, sometimes referred to this fact, this wonder, uh, by this phrase, that the dust of earth now sits on the throne of heaven. The thing that's unique really to the ascension uh, is that Christ reigns in heaven uh, as a man, as a human being. Uh, He's always reigned. Uh, The Holy Trinity has always reigned um, throughout eternity. But now Christ reigns um, as a man in heaven. Uh, The the ascension uh, is vital to our faith. It's vital to our relationship with the Lord Jesus because it allows us to speak about Christ in the present tense. We think about the major events of our faith. We look back uh, to his death, to his resurrection. Uh, We look forward to his return to judge. What about Christ now? What is Christ doing now? Well, he is currently ascended. He's currently ruling. He's currently reigning. Um, And everything that we we do as Christians and all our relationship with Christ now has its focus on the ascension. Christ, of course, ascended uh, up into heaven. And we read about uh, him ascending up into the clouds. And it's a little bit of a strange thing for us to think about now. You know, is is he a little bit further up just, you know, past Jupiter or something like that? But of course, if we understand the, the Old Testament uh, symbolism, uh, we need to remember that the clouds, what do the clouds stand for? They, they, stand, they stand for uh, God's glorious uh, sort of presence. Remember the glory cloud that would rest upon the temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Christ has now ascended up into heaven. He's ascended up into the right hand of the Father uh, to dwell there. So our own Reverend Doctor, Doctor Matthew Sleeman, uh, puts it like this: He says that Jesus has has bodily gone where no man has gone before. Which uh, obviously stealing from uh, uh, Star Trek's famous split infinitive, as he calls it. He's reading um, some sermons on on the Ascension by Leo the Great, uh, who was Bishop of Rome back in the the mid of, middle of the, the 5th century, the 400s. He says that the ascension of Christ is our elevation. And since where the glory of the head has preceded us, uh, their hope for the body is also invited. Um, let Therefore let us exult, dearly beloved, with worthy joy, be glad with a holy thanksgiving. The early church made much of this. It's, it's sort of gone through a, a period of neglect and it's maybe been um, retrieved a little bit, but um, it's, part of, it's right there in the liturgical calendar. Again, neglected a little bit. Uh, as good evangelical Anglicans, we tend to go hard on, on Easter and Christmas, maybe Pentecost, probably Harvest. But, um, the early church made a, a great deal about the the ascension and the fact that, that Jesus has has risen. There, there is a man in heaven. Uh, I've heard it, heard it talked about a little bit. Like um, it's like you're you're going to a, a restaurant and, and you're running late, but it's okay because you're one friend who's always early has gotten there and has, has claimed a table because he's there and he's staked out that, that table. You're coming in after, but you know that the place is secure. Um, like the, the German family gets up at six o'clock in the morning in your, your hotel resort and lays out their, their beach tiles and claims their seats for the whole day. It's, it's Jesus has gone ahead of us. He's in heaven and he's, he promises that he's, he's going to bring us to be with him. We are, we're united to Christ by faith. So we are, I think Paul Paul talk, Paul uses language of we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. We can't be separated from Christ. We're, we're he's the vine and we're the branches, but he is he's seated in heaven. Um, 
and ruling all things by his by his spirit. Um, so finally, let's think about um, the ascended Christ and his work as prophet, priest, and king. So this is the th- threefold office of Christ uh, that comes through Calvin. That uh, makes much of the threefold office of Christ. And you can think about it uh, in terms of his incarnation and his death and uh, his resurrection and his ascension. But we'll finish off by thinking about uh, the threefold office in his ascension. So let's think about him as, as prophet. Um, Acts chapter 1 verse 1 speaks about um, Luke's gospel as describing all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is that now in this uh, second book uh, that Luke is going to describe uh, all that Jesus continues to do and teach, uh, except he's doing it now, he's teaching it now through the means of the Holy Spirit. So one of the, the major significant elements of the ascension is that as Christ has ascended, he now pours out his Holy Spirit upon the church uh, and the Holy Spirit then inspires the apostles, certainly in in writing scripture, to write what Jesus himself uh, gives the Spirit to write, uh, to say. Um, And then as the apostles and all the church testify to the risen Christ, um, they are fulfilling the work of Christ in his prophetic office as he speaks through them. That's right. I, um, it's important to say we can't we can't separate out uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit because Jesus is the one who's poured out His Spirit, who, who's acting in the world by His Spirit. Um, so it's not just the apostles who are um, who are taught by Christ by the Spirit, but actually every week when you go to church, every every time you open your Bible and you uh, you prayerfully read the Scriptures, it, it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who's been poured out on the on the church by Christ who. Who helps us every time a minister gets up to to preach? It's Christ by His Spirit who uh, who teaches through them. As you said, the ascension lets us talk about Jesus in the the present tense. Uh, Jesus sit, sitting in heaven is is building His kingdom through the Spirit. Uh, so Jesus continuing to teaching, continuing to teach, uh, continuing to fulfill that role of, of prophet by His Spirit. So the threefold office is, is um, it's not three offices, one office with three parts. Obviously, he, he's our he's our prophet. He's also our priest. Um, Book of Hebrews is great on this. Uh, we were thinking about this the other day. Jesus is our is our high priest. High priests are, are you know, the priests make sacrifices. They which involves you know the the physical uh, the death of the animal that's being sacrificed, but also the presentation of uh, of the blood. So if you look at the yes the high point of the Jewish liturgical calendar um, in Leviticus, it's it's the Day of Atonement. Uh, that day once a year when they they would they'd sacrifice a goat outside outside the temple courts. And then the, the high priest would take the blood of the of the of the goat and go into not just into the holy place but into the holy of holies, the the very center, the most um, the most set apart place of the temple. And only one person went in there once a year. The high priest went in once a year, and he would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice on the the various the, the ark of the covenant and things that are in the in the holy of holies. And Hebrews tells us there's a bit like a picture of there's a picture of what Jesus has done that he's. Uh, he's died on the cross. He's died this ignominious death outside the camp. But then he he ascends and he takes his his body with its its scars and its its pierced hands and feet and the, the hole in his side, uh, marks of the cross, but sort of marks of his his sacrificial death. And he he goes into the the true holy of holies. He goes into the presence of God. We shouldn't think of him as our as our high priest, continually offering sacrifice or continually um, stuck in this kind of permanent liturgical service but he he is there 
in heaven as the, the proof of um, the proof of the death that's taken place to to reconcile us. Um, so there's the the Getty song, you know, before the throne of of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And and it says, you know, my name is written on his hands, my name is graven on his heart. Uh, the same Jesus who who died on Calvary's cross, who bears the wounds of that death, who shed his blood for the remission of our sins is in heaven for us. Another element of Jesus's uh, priestly ministry uh, is in a sense, uh, in a sense, his, his benediction to us. Um, so his benediction to us is actually, you know, what, how we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Torrance uh, writes that in his ascension, Jesus Christ blessed his people and fulfilled that blessing in sending down upon his, upon us the presence of the Holy Spirit. The language which the New Testament uses to speak of these aspects of Christ's heavenly priesthood is taken uh, from the Old Testament accounts of Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham. And so you think about the role of the priest uh, blessing, giving the benediction to the people. Christ, as the true high priest, gives us uh, the greatest benediction of all whenever he actually confers to us the Holy Spirit, which the apostles received at the day of Pentecost. And then uh, finally, uh, we let's think about Christ's work as king. This is really prominent, of course, in the ascension. Jesus is now coronated as king in heaven, in glory, in splendor, in majesty. In a sense, God's favorite Bible verse, uh, you could say, is Psalm 110, verse 1, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the reason why, in a sense, we can say it's God's favorite Bible verse is because it's the one that's repeated the most. It's the most cherished uh, verse in the New Testament. There are mo- uh, many, many, many references to it uh, within the New Testament, either explicit quotations or uh, sort of subtle references. And the sense is Christ is in heaven. Uh, he's at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he is ruling. He is reigning until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Uh, the Lord Jesus says at the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh, and it's on, the, it's on the basis of that authority that we now go Uh, and proclaim his majesty to all the nations and then finally in the book of revelation that we read that it is the lion of the tribe of judah the one who's descended from king david he is the one that is worthy to open open the seal uh, to open the scroll uh, so that the plan for the nations can be unveiled of course the the lion of judah is also the the lamb who looks like he's been slain which is which is a, a really stunning sort of juxtaposition of of He's the the conquering lamb, but he bears the marks still of his um, uh, of his crucifixion. I I can't find the page here, but but um, Sleeman makes a great point about Christ as uh, as the ascended King. His whole his whole chapter is on kind of place and what does it mean for Jesus to be uh, to be absent from our removed from our physical sight that he he's not present on earth. Uh, he's present on heaven. He says um, uh, we mustn't think of Jesus as absent and and inactive says jesus is absent but he's but he's active and he the fact that he's not located in one particular place is is kind of how he how he is ruling all places i think there's some some eschatological ideas where jesus is going to return and set up a a kingdom in in jerusalem or they they put a a particular emphasis on certain geographical locations the point of the of the ascension is not not that we you know we don't gather every year on the mount of olives and say oh this is where jesus this is where Jesus wrote, you know, um, ascended from. Uh, the point of the ascension is that Jesus is is not in in is not on earth, 
Uh, and so he he is um that's actually how he asserts his through the spirit asserts his dominance over uh, over the whole world and then when jesus returns it's he's still returning in a human body that that's you know in one place in time but somehow it's 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 going to be um you know jesus says as the light as you, as the sea as the lightning uh, lights up the whole sky from the east to the west when jesus returns it's going to be a global event as well it's not going to be a quiet a quiet incarnation like like in bethlehem So we'll finish by praying the collect for the Ascension Day. Um, so let's pray as we close. Grant we beseech thee, almighty God, that like as we do believe thy only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to have ascended into the heavens, so we may also in heart and mind thither ascend, and with him continually dwell, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Oh,